It's the dawn of a bright new day in healthcare. Millions of Americans are rediscovering hope with a weekly dose of UNFTR. After January 6th, I had trouble sleeping and focusing during the day. Then I started listening to UNFTR, and now I'm just fucking pissed off. All the time. For years, I thought I was losing my mind. Then I realized that it was the rest of the country that had lost its mind. Thanks, UNFTR. UNFTR reduces pressure on the cerebral cortex, the part of the brain responsible for reason, language, and learning. By exposing your mind to consistent bombs of truth, UNFTR works to reduce those why is this happening moments and allows you to see clearly what's really going on in the world. The clinical name for UNFTR is Unfucking the Republic. Do not take UNFTR if you have a history of listening to conservative talk radio or alt-right programming, including Rush Limbaugh, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Candace Owens, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Glenn Beck, Mark Levin, Dave Ramsey, Michael Savage, Charlie Kirk, Bill O'Reilly, John Stossel, Brett Baer, and Sean Spicer. Mixing UNFTR with right-wing propaganda may cause severe side effects like spontaneous combustion or explosive diarrhea. Studies have shown that consuming UNFTR over a long period of time may also result in an irrational hatred for Chicago school economists. Avoid UNFTR if you're allergic to profanity or facts. Serious side effects may include screaming at your relatives over holiday meals, unfriending most of your high school friends on social media platforms, and profound feelings of isolation and rage. To help see the world clearly and meet people where they are, I take UNFTR. Ask your doctor if listening to UNFTR is right for you. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Many Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. And, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Overcaffeinated Members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brian, Awesome A, Asoke, and Asshole. Chapter 1. Understanding the Scope of Healthcare. Welcome back to another edition of Unfucking the Republic. Let me begin by saying that I lied to you. This is now officially a series, and today is part two of three. It has to be that way. Sorry, not sorry. The first installment encapsulated the magnitude of the industry that accounts for 20% of our nation's GDP and how efforts to pursue universal health care were scuttled over the years. Today's episode examines the role of private insurance in our system and details how Obamacare came to life with little discussion around a public option and effectively killed any hope of considering Medicare for all, at least for now. At my side in the operating room, as always, are my faithful colleagues, sound design maestro Dr. Manny Faces and legendary producer Dr. 99. Doctor? 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 The New York Times dropped an article this week detailing the falling U.S. mortality rate, a fall that Dr. Stephen Wolf, director emeritus of the Center on Society and Health at Virginia Commonwealth University, called historic. From the article, quote, it was the largest reduction in life expectancy in the United States over the course of a two-year period since the early 1920s, when life expectancy fell to 57.2 in 1923. That drop-off may have been related to high unemployment and suicide rates during an earlier recession, as well as a steep increase in mortality among non-white men and women. Although the U.S. healthcare system is among the best in the world, Americans suffer from what experts have called 
the U.S. health disadvantage, an amalgam of influences that erode well-being, Dr. Wolf said. These include a fragmented, profit-driven healthcare system, poor diet and lack of physical activity, and pervasive risk factors such as smoking, widespread access to guns, poverty, and pollution. The problems are compounded for marginalized groups by racism and segregation, he added, end quote. So I want to thank the Times for the proper introduction to our second healthcare episode as we chip away at a more clear understanding of the American system, how it compares to others around the world, and the unique challenges that we face in repairing it. On the big stuff, there's a general belief that the United States has the most inefficient and disparate level of healthcare among what is known as the OECD countries, unless, of course, you're filthy rich, in which case our care is wonderful. But I digress. OECD is just one of the acronym organizations that we're relying on when contrasting systems, structures, and outcomes across the world. And it's a good place to pick back up on the topic to frame the discussion. In terms of measurement, OECD nations aren't the be-all and end-all. To start, this is an organization of 38 member nations representing Europe, the Americas, and the Pacific region. So naturally, there's a vast number of countries that aren't represented. But the purpose of using OECD nations as a benchmark is because the organization itself is a collection of countries with so-called market economies. There are corollary OECD working groups that draw data from non-participating or full member countries, but that goes a little further than necessary for our purposes. So why bring this up? I bring it up because the BRIC economies, for example, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, aren't full members, but that doesn't mean that their systems and outcomes aren't relevant to us. Like it might be surprising to know that China has a market-based insurance system. It works differently, and nearly every citizen has what's called basic medical insurance, or BMI, but it's important to understand that there is parity in other places that we don't think of off the bat. The other comparative area to explore is with respect to outcomes. And as I mentioned in the prior episode, we're relying on World Health Organization data because it has the most consistent 50-point benchmarking strategy over the longest period of time. Those are enough individual data points to be statistically meaningful, and the key element is, of course, a consistent trend line. All right, you've covered your ass. Let's go. Okay, okay. All of which is to say there's no perfect way to go about this. The inputs and the measurements matter, and no one country, just like no one patient, is the same. But if we're to rely on global metrics, there are a few unmistakable signs that we are on the wrong path here in the United States. So beyond the emotion and the politics, we have major structural issues, not the least of which is spending for care per capita. Despite spending the most per capita on healthcare by a wide margin, we have comparable to less favorable outcomes, and we'll talk more about that a bit later. Outcomes and satisfaction are two different things. So in terms of satisfaction, how satisfied overall a country's citizens are with healthcare access, affordability, and quality, the U.S. also really has a problem. When you compare it to a country like France, which regularly ranks at the top of the list in terms of satisfaction, we spend double the amount per citizen. See, these are the gaps that drive policymakers and medical professionals nuts. And yet, when policy measures are introduced, we seem incapable of asking the hard questions. Unless it's this guy. So, Bernie, why is this a problem? I'll tell you why. Uh, because right now, as a nation, as a nation, we are spending twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country, over $10,000 a year. Family of four, $28,000 a year. That is unsustainable. But other politicians, like this guy running for office in 2008, recognized the problem using this very comparison. We spend more than other advanced nations on healthcare by a substantial amount. We spend about 50% more than France does on healthcare, and yet they've got universal healthcare. Doctor will come to your house at three o'clock in the morning and prescribe you for what you need, and you get it for free. Now, yes, you're paying higher taxes, but what's also happening, though, is they get a much more efficient system because they have more prevention, and as a consequence, regular checkups, regular screenings, they save money and improve quality over the long term. What's fascinating about this particular clip is how little of the candidate's understanding of the problem actually made it into the proposed White House solution 
once he became president. And we'll talk about this shortly because precious little actually came from the Obama White House because it wasn't his plan, because he didn't have a plan. The plan that is today known as Obamacare was originally known as Romney Care in Massachusetts and had, in fact, been circulating in conservative policy circles as early as 1989 by a Heritage Foundation associate named Stuart Butler. In fact, here's Butler explaining the essential part of what he was trying to solve. It seems to me that until we get serious about a budget in the publicly supported through tax or direct expenditures, the publicly supported parts of the healthcare system, we will never exert the pressure to make the tough decisions on how we actually get healthcare that we really need to do. Again, we'll get to this when we talk about how the ACA came to be, but I want to recognize some of the language as we continue here. That direct tax he's talking about is what became the so-called mandate. That thing that caused Republicans to try and repeal and replace Obamacare countless times and the very thing that the Roberts court in fact determined was a tax. Now, importantly, Butler was trying to solve this not to expand coverage or improve outcomes, but ultimately to contain costs. See, he was attempting to devise a way to tax citizens and provide them with direct funds to manage their own health care needs, very much akin to Uncle Nipple Dick's idea of catastrophic insurance for all with individual spending accounts. Whereas Democrats ultimately embraced the bulk of this plan along with every other profit provider in the country, the original conservatives were trying to dismantle the entire system, especially entitlements like Medicaid and Medicare. Same inputs, vastly different desired outputs. It would have been impossible to do these episodes without a book that I mentioned last time that an unfucker actually recommended to us, titled The Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr. At the very least, these episodes would have been different. I want to read a passage that perfectly illustrates the tension that we spoke about last week because it will help set the table for the main areas that we're going to focus on today and the subsequent episode, and that's insurance companies and hospitals. Here's Starr. Quote, the dynamics of the system in everyday life are simple to follow. Patients want the best medical services available. Providers know that the more services they give and the more complex the services are, the more they earn and the more they are likely to please their clients. Besides, physicians are trained to practice medicine at the highest level of technical quality without regard to cost. Hospitals want to retain their patients, physicians, and community support by offering the maximum range of services and the most modern technology, often regardless of whether they are duplicating services offered by other institutions nearby. Though insurance companies would prefer to avoid the uncertainty that rising prices create, they have generally been able to pass along the costs to their subscribers, and their profits increase with the total volume of expenditures. No one in this system, stands to lose from its expansion, end quote. So this last point, the idea that everyone in the system stands to gain from expansion is tantamount to understanding how our system developed over time and why the ACA codified and in many ways bolstered the standing of profit-oriented organizations. As far as the who that Starr refers to, the no ones in the system, we gave a partial list last time, but let's zoom out a bit to really drive this point home. Again, not even still a complete list, but a much more comprehensive view of stakeholders in the system derived from a list of SIC codes or the Standard Industrial Classification System in America. This is how we detail all of the types of companies that we have and organize them, right? These are the ones who benefit from expansion and they all had a seat at the table in designing the system even further under the Affordable Care Act. Here we go. Skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, home health care, chronic disease specialists, medical research, medical schools, health care apparel and supplies, inpatient and outpatient rehabilitation services, laboratories, obstetrics, osteopathy, oncology, ophthalmology, pediatrics to podiatry, medical malpractice attorneys, 
dentists, dental supply companies, abortion providers, the Catholic Church, oxygen providers, insurance brokers, tribal health services, blood banks, sperm banks, prosthetics, wheelchairs and accessibility devices, hearing aids and eyeglasses, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, end-of-life care, electronic medical record companies, billing companies, mental health care providers from psychologists to psychiatrists, chiropractic care, naturopaths, physical therapists, medical device manufacturers, general practitioners, hospitals, insurers, collection companies, pharmaceutical companies, pharmacy benefit managers, pharmacies, independent pharmacies, emergency care providers like EMTs and ambulance drivers, anesthesiologists, medical contracting and construction firms, labor unions. And this doesn't include agencies like the VA or the myriad regulatory bodies that oversee each level of care, or the FDA, USDA, social services, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. These are just the organizations largely incentivized by profit, the ones who only stand to gain from expansion. And every single one of them had a seat at the table when designing the system. UNFTR is also sponsored by our unfucking overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 2 The Insurance Class System. These politicians, they say the same thing over and over and over again. Healthcare decisions should be made by doctors and their patients not by the government. Well, now I know they're not made by doctors and their patients or by the government. They're made by the fucking insurance companies. Insurance exists in other countries. Canada has private insurance you can buy to layer on coverage. China, as I mentioned before, has an insurance industry. Germany has private insurance to fill the gaps. But the most common thread among these other nations is that baseline insurance is federal. Government insurance subsidized through taxation that automatically enrolls every citizen to cover preventive and routine care, emergency medical procedures, and even long-term and chronic care. In most other countries, private insurance can potentially cover elective procedures or low-coverage areas like vision and dental. Employers and employees pay into the systems through deductions and the government supplements funding by taxing certain industries like alcohol and pharmaceuticals. Costs are primarily contained by the government, setting the price of procedures, visits, prescriptions, and the like. And if you need a solid example to wrap your head around how this type of system works, here's one, Medicare. This is essentially how Medicare works, although the government has slightly less control over the cost of certain items like pharmaceuticals. That's why it was such an important move for Biden to include negotiating power for prescription drugs and a cap on out-of-pocket expenses to seniors in the Inflation Reduction Act. But to keep things really simple, when we talk about universal health care in this country, it's not always the same thing as Medicare for all. I know that sounds obvious, but it's a really important point. Universal healthcare is what the ACA was driving at. Through a complex network of coverage schemes cobbled together to provide varying levels of coverage that differ from state to state, Medicaid for low-income families and individuals, Medicare and its different parts for seniors, employer-based insurance, exchanges for freelancers or the unemployed to purchase healthcare, special considerations for veterans, tribal health services, social services, and nonprofits that receive federal aid, and stand in for government programs, especially in areas concerning mental health. All of which leaves the citizens in the United States in a rather precarious position. Depending upon your level of employment, station in life, age or occupation, it's all different. In other words, precarious. The insurance coverage scheme has created a class system in America. To address this, we have to talk about the Affordable Care Act. While the ACA brought millions of Americans into coverage, gaps remain. As of right now, however, the percentage of uninsured Americans dropped from the persistent double digits to around 9%. And that's not bad, except the number of underinsured is still much higher. And that 9%, by the way, equates to 26 million people. That's the size of Australia's population. 
So we treat Medicare like kind of a trophy in this country, something that you get for crossing the finish line of 65. And maybe, just maybe, that was a little more appealing before our fucking mortality rates started dropping. For a little context, countries like Japan didn't see a drop in mortality during COVID, and every comparable nation recovered after the initial drops. But not us. So now we're in a situation where we're dying younger even after our rates had plateaued while others continued to increase. Another unique feature, or fuck you in the United States, is the phenomenon of bankruptcies due to medical costs. A Kaiser Family Foundation report in collaboration with the New York Times conducted a qualitative analysis of medical debt and found that many who struggle with medical debt and even file for bankruptcy had insurance. But the costs beyond their coverage placed them into debt. Despite attempts as early as the Bull Moose Party under Teddy Roosevelt and several administrations from FDR and Truman, Kennedy, and even Nixon, the pursuit of a universal system of healthcare coverage has eluded the political class. Despite the overwhelming popularity for some form of universal coverage, from a public option to Medicare for all, the political class has been unable to muster the momentum to pursue it. First off, as we'll examine below, there are practical reasons why a public option within the current structure isn't really viable. And to be clear, there are more in favor of this route than Medicare for all. But to understand the distinction between them, it's instructive to look at the circuitous path the ACA took to becoming settled law in the U.S. It's ugly and fascinating and frustrating. Since when do Democrats attack one another on universal health care? I thought we were trying to realize Harry Truman's dream. I thought this campaign finally gave us an opportunity to put together a coalition to achieve universal health care. That's what Senator Edwards and I fought for and talked about throughout the campaign. Just because Senator Obama chose not to present a universal health care plan does not give him the right to attack me because I did. Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Chris Dodd, Barack Obama and others were vying for the Democratic nomination in 2008. The real race was between Clinton, Obama, and Edwards from the beginning, with most candidates withdrawing in January, including Edwards, and former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel pulling out in March. Only one candidate, among the whole host of Democrats running that year, publicly endorsed Medicare for All, Dennis Kucinich. But healthcare was a hot topic, and no one was more prepared than Hillary Clinton who had the most time in the game from attempting to devise a universal coverage plan during her husband's tenure in office. The only candidate who didn't have a plan, like at all, was ironically Barack Obama. This is where Stephen Brill's detailed account of the ACA in his book America's Bitter Pill really shines. He recounts the primary debate in 2007 in Las Vegas where the candidates were pressed on healthcare, saying, quote, the other candidates were crisp, knowledgeable, and specific, especially John Edwards, who freely acknowledged that he would end the Bush-era tax cuts for both the middle and upper classes in order to pay for expanded health care. And then there was Hillary Clinton. The New York senator stole the show. Her standing, strolling presentation was a tour de force of personal stories, sophisticated detail, easily understandable data, and great one-liners. Barack Obama, the former Harvard Law Review president and boy wonder senator, was not used to not being the smartest guy in the room, end quote. From this point forward, Obama would commit himself fully to understanding the magnitude of the healthcare problem and committing to many of the policies enumerated by his competitors, much to their great annoyance. And yet, upon taking office, something remarkable happened. Full acquiescence. Now President Obama had an economy to repair and a stimulus package to work through Congress to save the imploding American economy. For better or for worse, Congress was shockingly prepared to take the ball and run with it, and the new president was all too happy to let this happen. Brill provides a brilliant, almost minute-to-minute -minute breakdown of what happened from this point to the passage of the ACA, the bill that then-Vice President Biden called a big fucking deal on a hot mic. Actually, it wasn't even a hot mic. I mean, my man was still at the fucking podium and he said it in an Irish whisper to Obama. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama. Could you hear it? This is a good fucking deal. Fun. Anyway, while Obama was busy plugging holes in the economy, a few stars were aligning in the Democratic Party. First off, Ted Kennedy was dying. Okay, that sounded terrible. Sorry. But this, too, was a big fucking deal because he was determined to make expanding health care his legacy. Another senator named Max Baucus from Montana was also interested in solidifying his legacy as a reformer after a lackluster career as a conservative Democrat. Now, Baucus was critical because he was the chair of the powerful finance committee. The big question on everybody's mind was whether or not any reform would be filibuster proof. In the end, this technicality didn't matter, and we won't get into the specifics of it today, but it was important at the outset because the Democrats came into office with 58 senators, two away from being filibuster-proof. Then, another miracle happened. Arlen Specter switched parties, and Al Franken was finally elected after a contested recount. Add Bernie to the mix, and that made 60. Excellent! But first, the Democrats had to develop a plan, and then heard the cats. Rounding out our sponsors for this week, this episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Jim M. Chapter 3, Making the Sausage. As we dig into the considerations during deliberation of the ACA, just a couple of quick definitions. MLR, or Medical Loss Ratio. This is essentially a way to cap insurance company profits. As Stephen Brill notes, quote, the MLR is the ratio of claims insurers pay out to hospitals, doctors, and other providers of medical care compared to the premiums they receive from customers who buy their insurance. On Wall Street, a low MLR was considered a badge of honor, a reason for investing in insurance companies. One of the most outspoken members of the newly formed administration was shithead Larry Summers, who worked behind the scenes to eliminate any talk of capping profits because, well, he's a fucking asshole. Age band. This is an equation that determines how much older people could be charged relative to younger insured members. Another important distinction in America. In most other countries, coverage is coverage. Even though it certainly costs more to care for seniors, most nations use the law of large numbers to spread the costs among the healthy population. Federal mandate. Ah, yes. The requirement to have coverage. This became the fulcrum of the debate. Forcing Americans to do anything doesn't exactly land well in the court of public opinion. The idea here is to compel people to carry coverage or tax them, which is ultimately what we wound up with. But in the beginning, it was absent from any White House talking points. But it was this element of the ACA that had its roots in the Heritage Foundation plan to essentially punish so-called freeloaders in the system. Of course, this would inspire two things. Upholding the ACA in court battles because it was considered a tax, and it would become a rallying cry for the burgeoning Tea Party and all subsequent opposition to Obamacare. Adverse selection. The reason for the mandate was something economists refer to as adverse selection. Essentially, young, healthy people don't feel the need to sign up for health insurance, and those are exactly the type of people that a plan needs to limit exposure and build numbers. Otherwise, exchanges would be filled with seniors and sick people. This is how other countries are able to avoid things like the age ban, and how they're able to contain costs and negotiate rates. With everyone in the system, there's enough money to go around to fund care and offer coverage. Everyone at the table understood that any plan would have to include millions of new, quote, customers in order to make the numbers work. Public option. This is a tricky one because it's often confused with Medicare for all. Instead of the government taking over health care, it would provide a consumer option for a government-run insurance plan. The reason this never got off the ground is because it's impossible to square with the private insurance industry. The only reason to provide a public option is to allow people to buy into a system that purchases healthcare services at the same rate the government, basically Medicare, already enjoys. But that would make private insurers completely uncompetitive. So fucking what, right? Well, everyone from Baucus to Obama left it off the table in the initial negotiations because they knew too many of their colleagues who were in the pockets of insurers would balk at the plan. 
in the end, it was actually Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman who killed it once and for all when advocates had insisted previously on including it. As Brill writes, quote, the Connecticut senator finally got rid of the public option, including a version that allowed individual states to choose to implement it or not. Lieberman also shot down an alternative that would have allowed people 55 or older to buy into Medicare so they could be protected but pay lower premiums from 2010 until 2014 when the exchanges, with their premium subsidies, would kick in. Well, that's just fucking great! With some definitions and understanding of the scope, let's recap a little. At this crucial point in history, when Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate, control of the House, and a president who was embarrassed enough by Hillary Clinton and John Edwards to make universal coverage a linchpin in his agenda, the stars were as aligned as they had been for decades. From the start, however, save for Bernie yelling from the wings and Dennis Kucinich proposing it from the fringe, no one was talking seriously about Medicare for all. The only question now was how the Democrats would wrangle compromise from within its own party. And the president, the person in charge, immediately threw it to the herd to figure out. That meant that the Senate primarily with all of the special interest groups and the state level interests would be coming up with the plan alone. Even Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats were essentially shut out of the process. Time was of the essence and the Senate began closing ranks and the litany of self-inflicted wounds was only just beginning. We traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. You hear me? It's coming from inside the house. Of course, there were external factors at play. There's a now infamous story of a dinner where pollster Frank Luntz, Newt Gingrich, Mitch McConnell, Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Bob Corker, among some others, gathered to devise a strategy to kill Obamacare right out of the gate. An insurance plan literally modeled on Romney care, which was crafted and conceived by their beloved Heritage Foundation. Luntz and Gingrich were there because they were the authors of Newt's successful Contract with America, the 10-point plan devised to derail the Clinton presidency. So they devised a public relations strategy with now familiar talking points and framing that would sit sideways in the ass of the American public. Phrases like government takeover, protecting the sacred doctor-patient relationship, death tax, death panels, and the ever-popular socialized medicine. Keep government out of my health care became a very familiar Tea Party rallying cry happily stoked by Luntz and crew. And it was working. Every rally, every town hall that was interrupted, every angry Fox News commentator hammered away at these points. And the longer the negotiations went on in the Democratic caucus, the more fearful the members would become. Senate Democrats, meanwhile, had a host of considerations on the table with special interest groups attached. Some would make it into the final bill, but many would be killed by said special interest groups. Options like providing Americans the ability to purchase prescription drugs from Canada. Giving Medicare the ability to negotiate drug prices. The public option. Tort reform. Cadillac tax on expensive plans subsidized by corporations. A medical device tax. Insurance company profit tax. There were other considerations like patent protection on certain drugs and therapies. What role the states would play in rolling out exchanges or providing their own plans. Whether abortion or contraception would be covered on plans sold through the exchanges. What was to be done about the age band, medical loss ratio, and what would the character of the federal mandate be? There was also the question of getting this thing paid for. Almost Every candidate, and certainly the Obama White House, had run on the theory that expanding coverage through insurance exchanges would be budget neutral and eventually even save the country money because so many new customers would be competing for health care, the market would respond by cutting costs in a more competitive environment. How's that working out for you? There was also the question of subsidies. Setting up public exchanges didn't mean that everyone could afford to buy into it, so they had to agree on a formula. Incomes 300% or 400% above the poverty line became a huge sticking point, and it made a huge difference, particularly in high cost of living areas. Senate Democrats with access to the modeling knew that setting the limit at 300% above the line would still prevent millions from qualifying for subsidies, 
so initially they set it at 400%. For most of the negotiations, Senate Democrats operated under the assumption that they required all 60 votes to pass a comprehensive bill. Now, in reality, this didn't turn out to be the case because the ACA was ultimately considered a reconciliation bill and it didn't require the 60-vote filibuster-proof threshold. This single point of view, taken as gospel from the beginning, meant that all of the special interests were able to negotiate favorable carve-outs, and by the time it was understood that 60 votes weren't needed, the plan was so far along in the process that it was almost unfathomable to start over. On top of this, there was some bad news coming and challenges out of left field that the team faced. As Brill writes, quote, On July 17, 2009, the Congressional Budget Office announced what one of Obama's health care aides called a bombshell. The CBO had just scored the House bill and declared that it would not result in any significant long-term health care savings, end quote. This was a disaster for Democrats who were stunned themselves by the CBO findings. Those intimately involved in the process went from using scalpels to hatchets to work the CBO estimates down to something resembling at least cost neutral. The longer the process went on, considering the economy was still in freefall, the less tolerance politicians had for spending. They were already about to propose a nearly $800 billion bailout plan. Anything more seemed like a bridge too far. To complicate matters further, Obama had an unfortunate exchange at Ted Kennedy's funeral of all places. Again, Brill, quote, One of the Catholic bishops in attendance bent his ear about abortion. The president risked the opposition of the church, and by inference, legislators, particularly conservative Democrats in the House, if he didn't make sure that no one got subsidized premiums to buy insurance that included coverage for abortions. There was even, he was told, strong opposition to insurance that paid for birth control, end quote. And we can't forget about the Republicans. As passage of something became apparent, Mitch McConnell introduced a poison pill by signaling their support for an amendment sponsored by liberal Democrats that would allow consumers to buy drugs from Canada. It's fucking devious and brilliant. As Brill notes, quote, on the merits, most Democrats loved importation. It would save consumers and cost the drug companies $400 billion over the next 10 years. Reed spared the dilemma of voting against something that they favored. He refused to let it come up for a vote at all, end quote. Whew. So in the end, the Senate would deliver a massive spending bill to the House with so many twists, turns, caveats, and carve-outs, Nancy Pelosi didn't know what to do. She had been perturbed all along that the Senate was running roughshod over the House, but by the time the bill was sent, she had little choice but to corral her members and sign on, even admitting to the press that it was too long to read, but they would work out any details when the bills were paired. If you don't recall this brouhaha, you can imagine how that went over in the conservative press. Almost everyone in for-profit care got what they wanted, all except the doctors and the patients. In our final installment next week, we're going to talk about hospital systems and comparative outcomes, but I wanted to finish with a few thoughts about insurance companies and the Frankenbill that is the ACA. My name, it's pronounced Frankenstein. The reason a for-profit insurance-based system is fucked from Jump Street is because of misaligned incentives. All the caps we talked about related to MLRs or age bans or taxes on Cadillac plans and equipment mostly went out the window in return for support from insurance companies. Now, to be clear, they did agree to a couple of really important things. The insurance companies would have to pony up billions of dollars to compensate for the flood of new customers. Hospitals and pharma companies would do the same. But as many observers on Wall Street keenly noted at the time, no matter the size of these givebacks, the amount of new customers into the system was going to be a massive win for all the for-profit companies, bar none. Eventually, the bill took so long to negotiate, the Democrats actually lost their majority when Ted Kennedy did pass away, and Scott Brown upset the apple cart to win the open seat, campaigning primarily against federal spending mandates. 
This would prove a useful blueprint for the Republicans in the midterms. In fact, so many crucial financing portions of the bill had been cut by special interest groups along the way that legislators quietly changed the poverty subsidy threshold from 400% to 300% to protect the neutral CBO score. Ah, horseshit! While there were a lot of winners in private industry, there's no question that the insurance companies made out the best. It's why they were so early at the bargaining table and so willing to ultimately fork over $102 billion over the next 10 years to help fund implementation of the ACA. An insurance company isn't incentivized to pay for patient care. As a for-profit entity, it has two incentives. Enroll as many people as it can at the highest cost possible and pay as little as possible for their care. It all goes back to this. Costs are almost meaningless. It's what the so-called market, or several markets actually, will bear, and who has the most leverage within the system. For example, the entire underpinning of medical billing is an elaborate system of billing codes. Prescribe a drug, take a urine sample, order an MRI, give out an aspirin, take blood pressure, perform open heart surgery, do a hip replacement, everything has a code, and that code has a cost. Except it's not a cost. It's a starting point, like an MSRP for a new car. In a hospital, they call it a charge master, which has been a huge source of controversy ever since Stephen Brill began writing about it before he published his book, America's Bitter Pill. So your doctor, or the team in charge of your care in the hospital, will tally up every little thing that happens, from room and board for pre- and post-op recovery days, to the nurse that takes your vitals. And then the negotiation begins. In a hospital setting or in a large physician practice group or specialty group, there are tiers of strength. Big New York, New England, Chicago, and California hospital systems, for example, get paid a lot closer to enumerated costs on the charge master than a small nonprofit hospital in the Midwest. A physician specialty practice group has more power than an independent doctor. A group of doctors can command more than a sole practitioner, and so on and so on. These are good doctors, my dear. They're the best. Though on the GP side of things, even the groups are finding it nearly impossible to compete, which is why so many practice groups are being swallowed up by hospital systems and transitioning from business owner to employee. When hospitals themselves consolidate, it usually means a reduction in the amount of beds. In fact, the number of hospital beds has declined precipitously in recent years, a reality that came back to bite us in the ass when COVID filled beds all throughout the country. But beds distributed throughout a region are difficult to manage and expensive. So if you can consolidate the big stuff under one roof on a primary campus and convert outlier hospitals to glorified emergency rooms that maybe can transport serious care needs by ambulance or helicopter, it's a lot more cost-effective for the hospital. And that is the name of the game. Get big to go small and charge the fuck out of the patient for everything under the sun. We're going to deep dive into the hospital systems in the next episode, but this gives a sense of where the problem really begins, with insurance and reimbursements. Recall from our primer episode that profits in the insurance industry are extremely healthy. We gave examples of three of the big ones out of nearly a thousand registered providers in the country. United Health Group posted $17 billion in profit for 2021. Humana posted $3 billion in profit, and Anthem posted $6 billion. All told, revenues for the health insurance industry topped $1.2 trillion in 2021. Those are your premiums. However, it's important to recognize that the profit margins aren't exorbitant. In fact, margins overall ranged from about 1.5% to 4% over a multi-year period. But that's not the issue. The issue is that they're guaranteed. They can't lose because they set the rates and the hospitals and physicians are incentivized to keep charging higher and higher costs to fuel their growth. It's a vicious cycle that will be unstoppable, barring extreme intervention into the perverse market-based system that only the United States operates under. So the final installment of the series will look at the cost drivers in the hospitals themselves, along with some caveats for Big Pharma. While profits are greater in pharma as a percentage of revenue, the revenue picture is half that of the insurance industry, just for some perspective. 
Overall, big pharma accounts for only 10% of total healthcare spending in the United States. So we're going to save the pharma analysis for another time when we unfuck PBMs, patent protection issues, and pricing of key drugs that strain a significant portion of the population. For now, we're going to stay focused on the two biggest drivers of insurance and hospitals because they feed off one another in a self-perpetuating cycle of madness that will know no boundaries unless and until we someday get serious about Medicare for all. And in the conclusion of the series next week, we will talk about a handful of necessary, although Sisyphean steps that have to be taken to get there. I'm sure it doesn't need to be said, but just in case. We've covered a lot of ground so far, and yet it feels like we've only scratched the surface. What should be apparent above all is the absence of dialogue regarding patience. The single parent working two jobs who still qualifies for subsidies on the exchange. The 26 million who remain unaccounted for in the system. The million Americans every year who file for bankruptcy because of medical debt. The emotional toll stemming from the incalculable loss of life during the pandemic. Countless individual stories that are reduced to actuarial tables in a system designed to protect the profit incentives of corporations. The ACA wasn't a bridge, it was a wall. There's no profit in a well population. COVID should have been the catalyst for permanent and structural change. Here endeth part two. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, welcome to post-show musings. 99 had to split for a moment, so I'm doing a little PSM solo. And all we really have to tell you is to remind you about the book love for this week, and that's Paul Starr's The Social Transformation of American Medicine and Stephen Brill's America's Bitter Pill, Money, Politics, Backroom Deals, and the Fight to Fix Our Broken Healthcare System. Both are obviously available in our bookshop, so you can catch it there. And we had a number of resources for this particular episode from the New York Times, Health System Tracker, The Atlantic, the Kaiser Family Foundation, United Health Group's annual report, Humana and Anthem's annual reports as well and then a report from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Remember, we take sourcing very seriously. If you have any additional questions about this episode, the prior episode, or suggestions for the hospital episode that's coming up next week, by all means, send them in. We're coming up on Labor Day weekend here in the U.S. and in Canada. I don't know if anybody else has a similar weekend abroad or in other countries, but uh, for all of you throughout North America who are celebrating Labor Day, Happy to be with you, taking off in honor of the labor class and all of those who fought for the 40-hour work week and not working on weekends and time and a half and all the good stuff that came from the labor movement in the United States that is sorely missed today. We will move on after this episode with hospitals. So we had our primer setting the table for the size and scope of the problem we were tackling and how often the can got kicked down the road with other administrations. This outlines the size and scope of the problem within the, the natural tension that exists in trying to ensure the entire population, but also wrestle profits out of that system. The two will never square. That's the bottom line. That's the lesson from this whole thing regarding insurance. And next week, we're going to see how insurance and hospitals feed off one another. And once again, brings me back to that kind of same conclusion that Yes, patients are caught in the middle, and we as consumers of healthcare are fucked in this country because of the rising costs and everything that comes along with that. But the other class of citizens among us who are really fucked by this system are the physicians themselves. Again, I weep and shed no tears for the private surgeons, cosmetic surgeons, or uh, the specialists that are making a couple million dollars a year and whatever. But those general practitioners, the ones that do have the sacred patient-doctor relationship, they are being squeezed 
and forced to be business people and spending more time reconciling paperwork and going through, you know, lists of charges and battling insurance companies themselves for reimbursements. It's just, it's kind of madness. And it prevents them from being their best selves in treating the patients and developing a rapport. It's just so silly in a system and a country that has this much money. So what I'm hoping to tease out from these episodes is the sheer madness in the structure of the system itself in a way that really resonates with people to help. When when we do talk about the public option or we talk about fighting for why Medicare for all is the most sensible approach, the most cost-effective approach, and the one that will probably elicit the best outcomes possible, if places like Germany and France and Japan and the Scandinavian countries and the UK can all do this in a way that provide better outcomes at half the cost than us, this will hopefully illustrate why that is and why Bernie has been shouting at the rain for so long for this type of coverage. The good news is that there are more voices like that within the Progressive Caucus that get this and understand it. But when you recognize, like in the case of trying to pass the ACA, the fragility of the relationships within Congress because of the special interest groups that pay for them to get those seats in Congress, this is a hard-fought battle seat by seat in the House and in the Senate to get elected representatives that aren't beholden to these special interest groups. Because right now, man, They've got it their way all the way, all the time. So I'm excited about some episodes after we finish up the three-part series. Again, sorry for misleading you that it wasn't going to be a series. It's just these keep getting away from me because of the size of it. But hopefully we can, you know what maybe we'll do also at the end of it is we'll we'll put them all together and we'll kind of, you know, mash it down so it's seamless and we'll release it like we did with the Clinton series into one chunk so that if you wanted to share it and pass it along and you find it helpful, you could do that. So that is all I have for today. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny Faces. Well, we got the room all decorated. So where's the big surprise? Right there. Hey, I know who that is. It's Manny Faces. Manny agreed to be our entertainment for the party tonight. For the party tonight. For the party. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Did you call her 99? Yes, I did. May I ask why? I don't know her name. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit tommcgovern.com. The show is hosted by Means and distributed by Regression Analyses. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr or just go to unftr.com and click all the links to find out what to do to support us. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod or again, you can go to unftr.com and click on the bookshop link. Get some native roasted coffee by going to unftr.com. Once again, all roads lead back to the website. Of course, you can also read our essays for free by clicking on the Substack link on our website as well. Remember, it will always be free. Look forward this fall to our friendraiser, fundraiser, hellraiser season, and we got a lot of good stuff coming. Catch you next time, unfuckers. <laughs>